Welcome to today's case file, Unseen Battle, the Plight of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women in the USA. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Violence, such as murder, rape, and other violent crime against Native Americans and Alaska Natives, far exceed the national averages. For decades, Native American and Alaska Native communities have struggled with high rates of assault, abduction, and murder of women. Community advocates describe the crisis as a legacy of generations of government policies of forced removal, land seizures, and violence inflicted on Native peoples. A study conducted by the National Institute of Justice found 84.3% of American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. And of those, 56.1% have experienced sexual violence. Overall, more than 1.5 million American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. When looking at missing and murdered cases, data shows that Native American and Alaska Native women make up a significant portion of missing and murdered individuals. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, American Indian and Alaska Native women experienced the second highest rate of homicide in 2020. American Indian and Alaska Native men had the second highest rate of homicide compared with males in other racial and ethnic groups. Homicide was in the top 10 leading causes of death of American Indian and Alaska Native women ages 1 to 45 and American Indian and Alaska Native men ages 1 to 54. One in seven American Indian and Alaska Native men were forced to penetrate someone during their lifetime. As human trafficking has become a world crisis, the Government Accountability Office released a report titled Human Trafficking, Investigations in Indian Country or Involving Native Americans and Actions Needed to Better Report on Victims Served. GAO surveyed tribal and major city law enforcement agencies and victim service providers on human trafficking investigations, victim services, and barriers to identifying and serving Native victims. Many identified lack of training on identifying and responding appropriately to victims, victim shame and reluctance to come forward, and lack of service provider resources as barriers to investigating cases and serving victims. 
According to the National Crime Information Center, in 2016, there were 5,712 reports of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls through the U.S. Department of Justice's Federal Missing Persons Database, but the National Information Clearinghouse and Resource Center for Missing, Unidentified, and Unclaimed Persons Cases across the United States called the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, NamUs, only logged 116 of those cases, highlighting an alarming gap. The Bureau of Indian Affairs estimates that there are approximately 4,200 missing and murdered cases that have gone unsolved. The largest gap identified has been investigative resources. A nonprofit organization called the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA has charged forward with a mission to bring their missing home and help families of the murdered cope and support them through the process of grief. They are game changers in this plight. We have a very special guest with us today, the executive director of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA nonprofit organization, Natalie Bullion. Welcome to the Body of Crime podcast, Natalie. We're so excited to hear about how your organization is creating change. We start where we always start. What can you tell us about yourself? Hi, my name is Natalie. I am a Chickasaw descendant. I have been working for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women USA initially as a volunteer since 2017. What got me motivated to be involved was I was pretty young at the time. And for my background, growing up, I had an upbringing with definitely some trauma, definitely the presence of historical trauma, but also, you know, I acknowledge like I definitely as a white passing native person have a background of privilege too. With that, learning more about my culture, reconnecting to my community, I saw so many things that I was like, we need to fight for change with this. We need to do the work to help our women who are going missing and help the families of those who are being murdered. So I started initially just collecting information on missing and murdered Native women in my region of the country. And that was with our founder, Deborah May Tubby Denton, who I worked with for many years up until her passing last year. So it was just her and I on the project initially with some other people who came and went and their time with us is very appreciated. Many people did work with our organization in the past. And so I just started there collecting that information and over time started doing interviews to talk to people who have been affected by this issue and help amplify their stories through our Facebook page, which, you know, the power of social media is something that, you know, cannot be understated because we were able to get so many voices heard through our Facebook page and build up such a large audience. So all that came from that initial motivation that Deborah had to found the organization and me to jump on. And we brought in such a good team And so that led me to where I'm at now. Sadly, Deb passed away in October of 2022. And pretty much, you know, we had to decide, okay, how do we keep this going? And it sort of just fell into my lap because I had been there for so long. And, you know, I knew a lot about what Deb did, how she did it. And 
also, you know, other skills that, you know, I had learned in my time in school um, and in my experience working, I was able to bring those to the table too. And so we decided, okay, we're going to keep this going, build up a strong team and keep doing that work. So that's where my background is. And that's how I got to where I'm at now doing this work. In terms of your team, how have you been able to find the right people to help you on this journey and help you on this mission of yours? Well, you know, the way Deb got me involved was just we connected over other things related to our culture. And then I started to learn about what she did for work. And I told her, you know, I want to be involved with this too. And that's kind of the same way that our team has built up. Of course, we hired people through posting job advertisements um, and spending time getting to know them in a rigorous interview process. Um, Also, people who we've seen do good work, you know, we recruited them as well for both our board of directors and our team because we are overseen by a board of directors made up of amazing people who are doing amazing work. And certainly, you know, those factors of seeing people do good work and recruiting them that way and also people coming to us and showing that strong passion for helping with this mission, um, that motivation, that's how we got people involved. And so I'm very proud to say that the work we do is made possible by a really amazing team that goes above and beyond to help and make sure that things are running smoothly, no matter what their role is. That's awesome. Yeah, that is incredible. It sounds like you got such an amazing group of people to work with you guys. For sure. I'm very proud of them. You told us a lot about you and you told us a lot about the the organization. How do you see your goals currently and then kind of how they progress into the future? So our goal, if I could look at, you know, our long-term goals and our immediate goals in relation to the reality of the issue as it currently stands, I would love to see not one more of our sisters go missing ever again. I would love to see not one more of our sisters get murdered again. And, you know, we've expanded our mission to the men as well. And um, we've always served the two-spirit community, trans people, LGBT people as a whole. So no matter where you are on the gender spectrum, we are here to help at this point. We do still honor the initial mission of serving MMIW through keeping our name MMIW USA. We, we serve all those people. And I would love to see not one more of our relatives, no matter who they are, go missing or get murdered or go without justice. But the unfortunate reality is that it will always happen. We just want it to not happen to us and then be mishandled or push to the side. And we want to make it happen the least possible. You know, like if I could eliminate every single case of violence, you know, make sure that it never happens again, I would. But the reality is, of course, violence is never going to go away. So we have to have a strong community backbone and we have to have a strong law enforcement background and legislative background 
all these things that are there to make sure that when something goes wrong, when something happens to one of our relatives, they're treated fairly, they're treated with respect, their families are treated with respect, and they're given the same resources that are given to, you know, people talk about missing white women in the media and how much their cases blow up. You know, we want that same kind of treatment for every case for our relatives and for everyone else. Everyone should be treated equally when something like this happens. Everyone should get a fair chance to have justice. We know that justice sometimes isn't possible for a number of reasons, but we want to do everything to alleviate that pain. We want to do everything we can to broaden the possibility and the opportunity for justice. We want to do everything we can to minimize violence as much as we can. That's the long-term goal. That is as far as how I would see the ideal world, making sure these things don't happen anymore. That is my long-term goal, uh, to get as close to that as humanly possible. We're not doing as much work as we have in the past related to legislation. However, we are always supporting legislation which helps our MMIW. And um, now that some legislation has passed, which opened up opportunities for more justice for our people, we're working alongside the team's law enforcement units, for example, the BIA Missing and Murder Unit, you know, we're working alongside those agencies more thanks to that legislation. So we still, for example, you know, when there is legislation on the table or there's committee hearings related to MMIP, public council meetings in towns or states, you know, on the state level, on the federal level too, um, we try to send delegates from our organization to speak about that. Uh, we still have petitions out there. This isn't necessarily related to our work in the United States, but rather supporting the work of those in Canada who are facing the same issue. Uh, there's a petition on our page to help with getting this landfill in Winnipeg searched for bodies that they say are located there, have been dumped there, uh, bodies that belong to our missing Native sisters. Petitions like that, that's one of many things. We also have been working several cases recently. Some of them I can't really talk about, you know, but others, you know, we're definitely vocal in support of, you know, and working to help these families get justice working to help get flyers out on the street, search parties going, stuff like that, and being able to attain justice for these families and good outcomes for the people that we're serving. Like, that's our immediate goal, primarily. And also, we're doing a lot of things. We have our data project. We plan to publish reports from the last two years before the end of this year, get that information out there so the public can be more aware and empowered with the data that we have collected. And then also our Staying Sacred program is kind of going through a change. We're now developing a curriculum we want to bring to different communities um, and help them get set up having their own Staying Sacred, especially for the communities where we see much higher numbers of runaways, which, you know, that's something that 
our data project has helped us to keep track of what areas we're having the most trouble with, what areas are having high-risk situations, more teens and youth in high-risk situations. So as we do that, you know, that's a big project too, and we want to get that going and have those programs set up on the ground too. So definitely there's so much work to be done. We have so many goals and so many things we're doing. There is one thing that I did want to highlight um, just because I'm very aware of this, but I know that there's gaps when it comes to how the government operates and the resources that they have available as opposed to what you guys have available, what the Bureau of Indian Affairs has available. Have you recognized any gaps that specifically really hit you guys hard that you feel like needs to be closed? More resources are available to law enforcement than pretty much any grassroots organization. That is very universally true for any sector where the nonprofit organizations doing the work have to supplement for the government. And what we are doing to a degree is supplementing what the government's not providing. You know, the attention that these families need to their cases when the government isn't providing people who are willing to get cases, you know, moving towards justice, we're going to do what we can to try and get that attention out there, get information from the public. There's at least one case where we have hired a private investigator or, you know, as far as like a missing person, an active missing person's case rather than like a cold case, for example, You do those differently sometimes. And so being able to provide those immediate search and rescue teams, we try to do that where we can. The funding is not always there. The people willing to do the job in an area on the ground, because we do cover the whole United States, so sometimes we're working alongside other teams when it comes to search and rescue. You know, that's not always there. But law enforcement, you know, they have the search and rescue teams that can travel. There's budgeting. There's things in different public budgets on the local, state, and federal level to allow for these search and rescue teams to come out. And, you know, we are always hoping that when someone goes missing and really needs that service, that it will be properly provided. But that hasn't always been the case. So... With that, you know, we try to supplement that need where we can, and sometimes it can be a strain, but we're always going to do our best to make it happen. If anybody wants to participate, anybody out there listening wants to be a part of what you guys are doing, or if they say, hey, we want to be available if you need people to help search, or we want to be available if they have resources, let's say that somebody who owns a plane wants to provide a plane to do some type of aerial searching, how would they go about, you know, getting a hold of you guys to be able to do that? That is a good question. We get inquiries a lot, both on our Facebook page and in our email address. So we encourage people who are interested in volunteering in any way. Certain skills we have more need for than others, like search and rescue, stuff like that. People who are willing to get out and search on the ground or put up flyers or go to news outlets and communicate stories, you know, like basically spreading information on our behalf, pressuring news outlets, like I said, to cover stories, pressuring law enforcement and 
government agencies to get involved. You know, we definitely need people who are willing to support in that specifically. Anyone with any of those skills especially is encouraged to reach out to us at uh, contact at mmiwusa.org and we will take your information and we have already used this several times, you know, if someone is located in the area where we have a case going on and we need support with that case, we always try to reach out via phone and email both that, you know, you can be aware of what's going on and be able to jump on if, if you have the time, if you have the resources at the time, that type of thing. So we've had success with that, and people can reach out to us that way. We'll take your information and reach out if we need you. You kind of mentioned a little bit about challenges with funding. Do you guys take any type of donations or anything like that? And and if so, what is the best mechanism for, let's say, contributing financially if you can't contribute of your time? So we take donations by check and by PayPal. So our PO box is on our website, I believe. I will have to double check that. And then also you can email us and ask for our PO box information if it's not there. Um, I have to update some things on our website. So it will certainly be up there soon if it's not now. And you can also donate via PayPal. Our PayPal donation link is on our website as well and the email address is donations at mmiwusa.org thank you for sharing that mm-hmm. whenever you guys are, are working a case do you guys ever create gofundmes around specific cases that you guys are kind of like investigating or helping search to, to help fund that particular case or anything like that if we do gofundmes on our page it's usually GoFundMe is where the family is the beneficiary or it's a GoFundMe that the family themselves have organized. So if we do GoFundMe's, in the past we had a GoFundMe for our organization specifically to donate to us, but we no longer use that. GoFundMe's are only, you know, where the families are the beneficiary and we're the organizer or the family is the organizer and we've been able to verify that the beneficiary is legitimate. So we put those on our page. And actually, recently, we worked a case where we still have an active GoFundMe up. Kimberly Fitka O'Daman from the native village of Marshall. She was murdered recently. And uh, that was after, you know, she went missing. We had to help her family get connected to resources. And she left behind seven children. And then we're also having to fight for her justice. So, you know, any support for the family, that's really helpful, too. And that GoFundMe is up on our Facebook page. That's a big case for us right now. We'll definitely share that uh, that GoFundMe on our show notes as well and, and help push that story out and, and talk about that story. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. You kind of mentioned the Staying Sacred program. Can you talk a little bit about what that program is and how that benefits the community? So in the past, our organization had Staying Sacred on our fiscal sponsors land. So we are fiscally sponsored currently under Try on Life Community Farms. We're working on all the forms and everything we need to get our own 501c3 tax status. We're very close. So our fiscal sponsor, Tryon Life Community Farms, is where we used to have our Staying Sacred program. And during that time, what it looked like was 
we would have the kids come out with their parents, food would be provided. There would be, uh, you know, first initially like a conversation about something that is a much more sensitive topic. And, you know, we would set it up to have, you know, the kids equipped with tools to help them cope through the conversation. And we'd encourage parents to be present. And conversations often include things like internet safety, child abuse, violence of different kinds, sexual violence, teen dating violence, that type of thing, in age-appropriate ways. Because the reality is that some people will say, oh, kids shouldn't be hearing about that. But there are kids living through it right now. So the conversation needs to be had, of course, so that they can know how to keep themselves safe how to advocate for themselves, how to recognize when someone else needs help. So those conversations would be had. And then afterwards, you know, with the knowledge that it can be a hard topic and something that's really scary for kids, sometimes there would be a self-defense instructor present, and that kind of physical activity and learning how to defend yourself can help restore that sense of empowerment to kids. And then also, you know, cultural teachings, we would bring that in. Things like we once had someone demonstrate how to make arrowheads. We've had conversations about beadwork, you know, doing beadwork, working with plant medicine, things like that. And often, you know, these would include things for the kids to take home to. And we'd always have a counselor present to show them techniques for calming themselves down, For example, if you're having a panic attack, how to calm yourself down and ground yourself, stuff like that to help the kids in their mental health aspect. So basically, you know, we want to have that conversation that covers all of the needs, the emotional, the physical, the mental, the spiritual needs of the kids so that they're empowered and they are healthy. Um, And we encourage the family the parents to be part of that so that they can benefit from it too. And, you know, I was able to, during like the coronavirus times, we took it to Zoom for a bit. We had a couple of Zoom staying sacred meetings and I was able to participate and be really encouraged by it as well. It is a good program and we're currently, instead of having them virtually, we want to make this available to, like I mentioned previously, our high-risk communities and other communities that would like to take part. And so, you know, the curriculum is underway and we're working on organizing partnerships, developing everything. So also, you know, because like we have urban communities where the native community is very intertribal, representing many tribes, many nations. Um, And then we have tribal communities where, you know, everyone's from that same community has the same or generally similar teachings, and we want them to be able to kind of cater to the specific needs of their community and the specific cultural teachings of their community. And so that's part of what we're in development with, too, um, working alongside our partners. I think it's really important. I think a lot of times we underestimate the resiliency of, of our young children and the fact that they're going to be exposed at a young age to a lot of these risks and it's important for them to understand how to respond to it because we can't be with them 24 seven. And so I, I applaud you for the work that you guys are doing with children, specifically Thank with the you. children. Yeah, for sure. 
there's definitely a lot going on, but you know, those kids, I mean, to us, we look at it as we don't want them to feel like they're floating out there on their own when something bad happens. We want them to know they have somewhere to turn to and know how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so incredible. Um, Thank you. I know that that on your website you mentioned about Amy and Sherry. Can you share with us about Amy and Sherry? To start off, Amy Lynn Hansen and Sherry Ann Woundedfoot were the first two families that Deborah helped when she founded MMIWSA, as I recall the story. See how MMIWSA got started was that Deborah was living on Navajo Nation and seeing just how many people were being victimized, being victims of violence, getting murdered, going missing. Many of her personal friends, you know, were victims of violence. And she even had a few who sadly passed away because they were murdered. And so this is something, you know, that motivated her to start the organization. And uh, when she did, the family of Amy Lynn Hansen was one of the first to pop up. Amy Lynn Hansen was born on March 12, 1989 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Jerry and Bernie Hansen in Tohatchi, New Mexico. A Navajo child born to Navajo parents, she came into the world a fighter being born three months premature and fought for the first few weeks of her life to breathe and overcome the challenges of being born too early. Together with the doctors, they managed to keep her alive through operations, surgeries, and treatments. And in June of 1989, she was allowed to go home with her parents to Tahachi, New Mexico, where she would be raised in a small, tight-knit community with less than 1,000 residents. She was welcomed by a loving family that included her big sister, Christy Hansen, and her grandmother, Rose Barney Hansen, who lived next door. Amy would be described in her obituary as having a kind heart and a gentle soul. She made special days extra special and was known for going above and beyond to help others. Amy had a great sense of humor and loved laughing and making others laugh. She did all things that kids typically enjoy, like playing games, watching movies, and drawing. Her artwork was particularly funny as she drew caricatures and the family loved her drawings and would hang them around the home. As Amy entered high school between the years of 2004 and 2008, she experienced some rough patches like most teenagers do as they seek to find themselves in their place in society. Her family supported her through those tough times and she came through victorious graduating from Tohachi High School in 2008 after turning 19. After high school, it took Amy a little while to figure out what direction she wanted to venture as the world opened a multitude of possibilities to her. The options were endless and a little overwhelming, to be honest. She knew she wanted more out of life and believed that college was the way to go. She began taking classes and soon found her niche in business administration. Amy focused, and through tenacious pursuit of what she wanted, she graduated in 2013 at the age of 24 with an associate's degree in business administration. She enjoyed the college experience and you could always find her wearing the UNM mascot Lobos merch, a Lobo through and through. She was working on her bachelor's degree before her life was cut short. On November 28, 2014, Amy was at her father's home in Tehachi, New Mexico celebrating Thanksgiving weekend. Amy left on Black Friday to visit friends. 
On November 29, 2014, Christy, Amy's sister, spoke with her on the telephone. Christy had asked Amy if she wanted to join her Black Friday shopping, but Amy stated she had already had plans to go shopping with friends. That would be the last day that anyone could confirm that Amy was alive. The last time anyone spoke with her. When UNM week exam arrived, Christy had not heard from Amy. She realized something was amiss and her family became suspicious of her absence and they began searching for her. She was last seen alive that Friday after Thanksgiving by her family. Amy's body would be found dumped in the bottom of an arroyo, which is a wadi or a ravine that's created by water, at the intersection of State Road 602 and Blue Medicine Well Road, near where a single-lane bridge crosses over the arroyo onto a two-lane road that cuts through dry, sparse land with low vegetation. She was found on November 30, 2014, by a father and a son. Initially, when her body was discovered and recovered, no one knew it was Amy. The morgue listed her as a Jane Doe. On December 8, 2014, after Amy missed UNM exam week and had failed to return phone calls to the family, and no one could confirm her whereabouts, the family filed a missing persons report. On December 17th, almost 10 days after the family had reported Amy's disappearance, the FBI contacted the family to positively identify Amy. Her truck was found at a local tow yard. The FBI hasn't revealed much else about the murder or released the identity of the friends Amy was last seen with. This continues to remain an unsolved cold case for the FBI. Amy was found 30 miles from where she was raised and where she graduated from high school and 8 miles south of Gallup, New Mexico, where she attended college. Her cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma. No suspects or persons of interest have been identified since her death was ruled a homicide. Her case was just recently declared a cold case by the FBI, basically at a dead end with it, and her family and the FBI are seeking information that could potentially bring that attention back to her case and help break through. At this point, she has not had justice, and I know that there are questions about, has law enforcement done enough? Are they doing enough? to help in her case. And I think that every MMIW case warrants that question as well, because so many of our cases get swept under the rug. And Amy definitely didn't get the media attention that she needs on her case. And it's certainly a struggle just sitting and waiting for information to hopefully come in or something to turn up. Um, as far as Sherry and Wounded Foot goes, you know, as I mentioned, she was another one of the families that Deborah first helped. And there's resources that were put into that case to help her family, help them, and also to spread awareness about her case. So Sherry and Wounded Foot was found injured behind the building in White Clay, Nebraska. She is found injured. She's taken to the hospital, and her family arrived at the hospital, and when they got there, and this is according to Uncovered, which is a blog that has information about murder cases, because unfortunately, I did not work directly alongside Deb on this case, so I'm not privy to all the details that she was, and I have never communicated directly with her family, but essentially, she was found injured. 
she was taken to the hospital. Her family got there and realized these are very suspicious injuries. And it's very likely that she was victim to some kind of abuse. So they called law enforcement and said, our mother has been victim of abuse. Something happened to her. She was a victim of violence. And sadly, she later passed away. And now, you know, pretty much it's a dead end on who did this to her. Her family's still looking for information. I don't know where the investigation stands with law enforcement, really. And I don't know how much they've done to actually help this case, to help remediate things, to help bring her justice. But it's just another case that has been sitting unsolved, and it's proof that so many of our cases, so many of our people are going without justice. So Sherry Ann Woundedfoot and Amy Lynn Hansen, they both need that justice. They both deserve that justice. And we are going to continue to put their stories out there. We deal with so many cases. Um, We've had so many now that there's so much to be said. There's so much to be done. But those two cases are special and they're significant because those families motivated Deborah to continue doing the work and to make this something big. And I think she did a really good job of building that up. Even now, that work motivates me. If I think about this case we're working, Kimberly Sitka O'Donnell, her family was able to get into the governor's public council meeting on MMIP in Alaska just recently, and they were able to tell her story and get that renewed attention because, unfortunately, you know, especially similarly to Sherry Ann Woundedfoot's case, law enforcement initially put out public statements or statements to the family, rather, um, but also in the news that her death was just by drowning. But, you know, there's the obvious question about what was going on around her at the time, and her family was not treated with respect by law enforcement. They were not treated with sensitivity. And so her family is able to go into the governor's MMIP meeting and tell her story. And we're hoping we can continue to push for justice. We are hoping that things will continue to unravel. But for now, you know, they're seeking answers, trying to get their story out there. We're just hoping that the truth will come out. We know that 84.3% of American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence in their lifetime. That's a high number. That, that means out of every 10 women, Native American women, at least eight of them are exposed to some level of violence. And we have seen in our work, in our investigations that we've done, and in some of the cases that we've been involved in, where media coverage has a direct correlation on effort from law enforcement. That's true. And a lot of times what we're doing is we're just, we work very, very hard to keep a case alive so that it doesn't just kind of dwindle into history. So much justice unserved because answers aren't being provided and people aren't continuing to look and continuing to ask the questions and continuing to provide solutions to some of the gaps. And so what you're doing is critical work and it's very important to keep these cases alive. Like you said, in the media's attention so that we can continue to fight for just for these individuals. Yeah. What you're saying is very true. Something to consider about law enforcement is that for the most part, because of qualified immunity, because of 
just the way that law enforcement works in this country and in many other places, and the nature of the work as well. All those things factor into police officers. Often there's not really a penalty if they're not doing something. If they're not doing something they're supposed to be doing, very seldom is there a penalty for that. Very seldom is there something that is going to force them to do what they're supposed to do when they're failing to do so. Yeah, there should be and some type of oversight, some type of oversight yeah. committee that says, hey, you were supposed to do these, exactly. 10, these 10 steps and you only did five of them. Uh, what's what's the deal there? And so without those kinds of oversight, we, the community, have to hold them accountable to do what they're supposed to do. And the media, that public outcry, public calls to action, those are what makes police departments act. Right. That's what makes police departments act because there has to be a certain level of trust of the public towards law enforcement in order for policing to be effective. That's true. And so that public outcry is everything and the media support, uh, media support that is genuine and, you know, not exploitative. That is crucial. Absolutely. How do people connect with your services if they're in a situation where, whether it's an active situation or if something's occurred and they want to reach out to you for support, do they just go to your website and tell you, hey, we're encountering this situation and we want to see if, you know, you can help us? Our contact information is on our website. People reach out through phone, through social media, through email, and Sometimes you can kind of sense the urgency of a case depending on the method by which someone contacts. So, of course, you know, with that, when people need to reach out, you know, we are there. Someone's going to be monitoring the contact inbox for our email. Someone's going to be monitoring Facebook. Someone's going to be monitoring our phone number, our other social media. You know, we try to monitor everything as much as possible but uh, we have a very small team of just seven people right now so not counting our board of directors it's seven people so we have to kind of put our resources towards the most effective channels so our best contact information you know that's going to be up on our website and on our facebook page and when people reach out we will evaluate what their needs are, what we're capable of doing. And one thing that I try to ensure is that whenever someone comes to us and gets connected to an advocate, even if we can't provide resources directly, we're going to help them find the resources that they need. That's awesome. And we're going to advocate for them as much as we can. And if you're interested in knowing how to connect, the webpage is www.mmiwusa.org. And you can also find them on Facebook at MMIWUSA. And we're Mm -hmm. going to provide those links on the the show notes as well so that it's easy access for everyone who, who either needs support or wants to contribute some type of time or financial support. We're going to make sure that we provide that in our show notes for you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, 
Do you have any last words that you want to share either about the organization or about anything that you guys are actively doing or anything of that nature? People ask us all the time, how can I get involved? How can I help? Well, even if you don't have the resources or energy or time to get on the ground and really do that frontline work, you know, not everyone is made for that. Um, And if that's not you, that's okay. But simply talking about it, encouraging others to talk about it, encouraging public discussion about it, uh, encouraging your local law enforcement and legislators to talk about it and about the issue of violence against Native people in general, which is such a prevalent thing, as we know. You know, encouraging those conversations is so helpful. Uh, Spreading awareness about specific cases, especially the ones that are local to you um, in your area, in your state, that is so helpful. And also, you know, remember, like, some people come to us and they have questions about what's going on there from outside of our Native community, and they maybe don't understand what's happening. You know, our people are struggling with the effects of historical trauma, generational trauma that, you know, has origins in colonialism and the way that our people were subjected to violence by colonialism. So we're dealing with the lasting effects of that. And MMIP, Missing and Murdered Indigenous People, that is just one of, you know, many effects of that historical trauma, that colonial violence that our people were subjected to. So we need support and we need compassion. Um, No matter who our missing relatives are, whether they're college educated or maybe struggling with addiction, whether they're old, whether they're young, their children, any of that, you know, middle-aged men, women, somewhere else, as far as, you know, on the gender spectrum, maybe they're non-binary, transgender. All of our people need support and compassion. So with that, you know, I ask that you would um, have those conversations and be understanding and compassionate towards all of our missing and murdered relatives. Thank you very much for allowing me to say that. No, absolutely. That's, that's a great message. Yeah, just a beautiful message. Thank you for sharing that. We want to express our heartfelt thanks to you, Natalie, for joining us today, sharing your time, expertise, and your insights, which greatly enriched our understanding of MMIW USA's mission and the challenges faced by Indigenous women. The passion and commitment you bring to your work is making a significant difference in many lives. Thank you very much. Everyone's on social media all the time. So the bare minimum, if you can't contribute personally with your time and you can't contribute financially with your resources, the very minimum thing that you can do is follow MMIWUSA on Facebook and share the stories because I've been seeing the stories and I've been sharing them as well. Share those stories and continue to keep these cases in people's attention and, and continue to shed light on what's happening and what's going on. And don't just turn a blind eye to it. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review 
and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.